Lumen Christi's mission is to enrich our community with the Catholic intellectual, spiritual, and cultural tradition. What better way to do so than to explore and celebrate the history of this most ancient sign of Christ's salvation? Professor Jensen's book is a treasure trove of knowledge and a delight to read, and I encourage you all to read it. I would also like to thank our co-sponsors for this event, uh, the Martin Marty Center, the Medieval Studies Workshop, the Early Christian Studies Workshop, and the Research in Art and Visual Evidence Workshop. A big thank you to our panelists, Professor Krause, Professor McGinn, um, our moderator, Father Gabriel, who's a doctoral student here at the Divinity School, and especially Professor Robin Jensen. We are delighted to have you here, so thank you. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to our speakers. Gregory the Great famously wrote that what writing presents to readers, a picture presents to the unlearned who view it, since in the image, even the ignorant see what they ought to follow. In the picture, he says, the illiterate read. In her book, Understanding Early Christian Art, Professor Jensen raises concerns about Gregory's perspective, saying, although it sounds well-meaning, such a perspective actually views visual art as inferior or subservient to verbal expression and suggests that images are the food for childlike minds, whereas theological treatises, homilies, or verbal arguments contain the meat of human intellectual formation. Not content to point out problems in the thought of one of the four great Western doctors of the church, she also draws attention to how structural weaknesses in the modern academy can exacerbate the tendency to see art as one thing and theology as another. She says, the distinct methods and objective goals of text historians and art historians have sometimes undermined efforts that are necessarily interdisciplinary. Professor Jensen then proposed a basic methodology to try to take, she says, quote, into consideration what we can, looking simultaneously at these two modes of communication of meaning, texts and images. Rather than seeing images as mere illustrations or digests of theological texts, Professor Jensen has labored for the last two decades to allow Christian art to speak in its own properly theological voice, a voice which, in point of fact, sometimes harmonizes with textual witnesses and sometimes pursues melodies of its own, but a voice that nonetheless needs to be heard in its own right. <clears throat> The cross, history, art, and controversy is manifestly a sufficient argument for the merit of Professor Jensen's methodological principle. Covering the broad sweep of Christian practices of representing the cross in 221 lucid and readable pages, she allows Christian and material and especially visual culture to make its own contributions to our understanding of how Christians have lived with, adored, domesticated, and feared what was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In one of my favorite passages in the book, 
it's towards the beginning, so if you're just skimming through, you don't have to go very far. Robin Jensen pre-produces an illustration from a late 13th century biblical manuscript. In an illustrated capital that begins the letter to the Philippians, St. Paul is depicted holding a codex from which the cross of Christ rises. The image itself captures Professor Jensen's methodology. The Christian witness gives rise to the image of a written work and the image of a work of art at the same time. Both words and objects are images, texts that give rise to each other and inform each other. And what arises when we allow both kinds of texts to speak together? I can only allow Professor Jensen's book and our discussion today to speak for themselves. So if you will allow me a moment to introduce our panelists. Professor Jensen currently serves as Pat Patrick O'Brien Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Her work uses art, art, art history, theology, early Christian studies, and archaeology, among many other fields, to investigate the theory and practice of realities so familiar to contemporary obser observers that we can run the risk of overlooking them. Baptism, sacred space, images of the divine, and of course, the cross. In addition to countless book chapters, articles both scholarly and popular, and edited volumes, her major books include Understanding Early Christian Art in 2000, Living Water, The Art and Architecture of Ancient Christian Baptism in 2001, and The Cross, History, Art, and Controversy in 2017. She is currently working on Idols and Icons, Material Mediation in Christian Late Antiquity, anticipated sometime this year, unless it isn't anymore. Maybe it is. Which investigates the development of Christian material culture in the third and fourth centuries. Speaking next will be Professor Karen Krause, who is currently Assistant Professor of Byzantine Theology and Visual Culture at the Divinity School here at the University of Chicago. She specializes in religion and visual culture in Byzantium and in the Mediterranean area. Her first book, The Illustrated Homilies of St. John Chrysostom in Byzantium from 2004, won an award from the German Southeast Europe Association. She has published on a wide variety of array of topics, including Byzantine manuscripts, the veneration of relics, the reception of Byzantine art and culture in the Latin West, the interrelation of texts and images, and the theory of the Byzantine icon. She's currently completing a second monograph with the working title, Images of Inspiration, Notions of Authenticity in Byzantine Art and Thought, investigating how ideas about the divine origin of texts and artifacts are employed in Byzantium to substantiate claims of religious and political authority. And Professor Bernard McGinn is Naomi Shenstone Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology and of the History of Christianity in the Divinity School here at the university. His decades of careful scholarship have made him one of the foremost living historians of medieval Christianity. And the seven published volumes of his work on Western Christian mysticism, counting now each of the two volumes of volume six separately, which is kind of cheating, which is entitled The Presence of God, are widely acknowledged as foundational for the study of the topic. In addition to his extensive work on mysticism, even outside the Presence of God series, he has published on topics as diverse as Isaac of Stella's theological anthropology, apocalypticism, the Antichrist, and naturally dear to the heart of any Dominican, a 2014 volume entitled Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, a biography. And without any further ado, Robin Jensen. In the short time that I have, I thought it might be 
interesting for me to reflect on how this project came about and why it turned out the way it did. First, I didn't actually propose this book to Harvard University Press. They suggested it to me as a quasi-companion volume to Stephen Fine's fine monograph on the menorah. And in case I forget to say, it's kind of interesting, they brought out his book on the first day of Hanukkah and mine on Good Friday. <laughs> but, so they had some kind of marketing idea in mind. And I have to admit that at first I declined. And I only agreed after they asked me to reconsider. My initial resistance was one you can probably guess. The cross is a hugely complicated subject and trying to cover the topic of the cross and the crucifix, I insisted, although they didn't actually think of that initially, from the first century to the present was more than a little bit daunting. I am not an expert on all or even most of the chronological periods, themes, or material artifacts this range of time would need to cover. I realized that I would need to rely upon the works of fine scholars outside my specialization and do a fair bit of my own research. That learning curve was challenging. And I will admit that in the end, it was an amazing process. I learned a lot. And I sometimes always use the example of my poor husband who had to hear at every <laughs> dinner table what I discovered today. Dinner table conversation. Initially, the press expected me to discuss the cross in other world religions, and I wasn't actually sure what they wanted or what they meant by that. So I convinced them to let me keep things pretty much focused on Christian crosses, albeit with some discussion of Islam and Judaism, which I did think it was necessary to include. Some people assumed I would simply be making a catalog of different types of crosses, Maltese crosses, Celtic crosses, Jerusalem crosses, etc. And I must say that this book's publication prompted a lot of emails from people asking me to identify one or another cross or crucifix they happened to inherit, uh, find in their <laughs> attics, you know, or buy online. My original plan was to tell I think this is why they asked me to do it finally, to tell a series of discrete stories that in the aggregate would, I thought, add up to a kind of narrative. That didn't actually work out as well as I thought it would, as I realized that it would leave too much out of the story. So instead, I settled on a roughly thematic and chronological approach trying to incorporate the vast range of ways the cross and crucifix appear in visual art, material artifacts, theological discourse, devotional treatise, treatises, prayers, hymns, purely mental concepts and ritual practices and even warfare um, from the first to the 21st century. I wanted to get as many of these into my strictly limited 100,000 words Sacrifice some of my favorites to arrive at no more than my contracted 65 illustrations and still keep it relatively coherent. I also still wanted to find a way to tell a story rather than write a scholarly monograph or much less an encyclopedic survey. 
Harvard might have asked me to edit a volume with chapters contributed by excellent scholars from different fields, but the press was clear. They, wanted, did, they did not want that, so I just simply dived in while trying to ignore my sense that this was an audacious and probably impossible task. However, I also knew that in, in addition to being an audacious project, my subject, the cross, was unavoidably controversial and more than a little bit risky. That's why I put the word controversy in the title. <laughs> to explain, I started gathering my material while I was still employed at a liberal, a mostly secular university and finished it after I'd moved to a more confessionally Roman Catholic one. I kept these very different sets of colleagues and a wide variety of readers in mind as I outlined my topic, acutely conscious of those who were likely to be disapproving, offended, or even hostile to my subject or my way of treating it. The cross, as you surely know, is something that a lot of folks have strong feelings about and some of those feelings run the gamut from devotion to dislike to disdain. Along with the polite observations regarding things I had overlooked, helpful and sometimes embarrassing corrections, and assorted other suggestions for improvement if I were to manage a revised volume, I anticipated hostile responses. But strangely and thankfully, the angry or disagreeable comments have been rare. I have, however, kept a folder of items or images I should have included or issues I might have addressed, suggested by people who were nice enough to share them with me or alert me to my oversights. These tell me that the commentators actually read the book and cared enough to respond in a letter or email or review or a formal setting like this one. And I find that amazing and incredibly gratifying often humbling and occasionally distressing. <laughs> Many of the items proposed for addition or correction, and this is, I thought, the part I could really put in here, if I could do this over again, were relatively modest. For example, a kind Anglican canon wrote to me from Dorset, England, to admonish me that I should have pointed out that catechumens were signed with crosses as well as sealed at baptism. A Coptic Orthodox Christian email, emailed me, quote, I have also noted that you haven't included the story of the cross in Ethiopia, where it has its own national holiday, has been tattooed for centuries on foreheads of girls, and was first carved on gold coins in 330 AD during the Axumite Kingdom, where cross making is a valued art. I thought this was a missed opportunity, end quote. <laughs> He's right. Someone wished I had said more about those cross tattoos, but not the ones in Ethiopia. One reviewer commented, quote, the cursory treatment given to crucifixes and images of the crucifixion from the Renaissance and Baroque periods, which constitute the imagery most associated with Catholicism in the modern popular imagination, is regrettable in this otherwise valuable work, end quote. Another reviewer thought I spent too much time in the early church I suspect I did that because it's become my, national, my natural habitat. Still another thought that the final chapter was a waste of space and wished I had been more attuned to the Eastern traditions. I realize that this, what this tells me actually 
is the topic is still filled with unmined riches and that I wish I could write a second volume or perhaps a longer revised edition. Maybe that's possible. Now, some of the questions, I just thought this might be kind of entertaining. Some of the questions I'm often asked. Why do Protestants have empty crosses? And why don't Catholics take Jesus off the cross? <laughs> You've heard this, right? Another one. When did we start making the sign of the cross as we do now? And why did the Orthodox Christians do it backwards? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> why do some crucifixes have three nails while others have four? Do crosses really repel vampires? No. <laughs> I, I have all these wonderful emails. I do, actually. Did early Christians draw crosses in the sand as secret signs for their, uh, their meeting places? This comes from movies, I think, mostly. Why do we wear crosses as jewelry? Wouldn't we, would we wear an electric chair or a gallows? Maybe some of you are old enough to remember Lenny Bruce's joke about that, but anyway. Why should Christians focus on Jesus' death, this is a little more serious, than on his, rather than on his life or teaching? Is that not a perverse glorification of suffering and victimhood, a validation of violence? And wouldn't some other Christian symbol be much better, a fish or an anchor? Finally, are the relics of the true cross real? Could we test them for the DNA of Jesus? <laughs> now, there are some important questions, I will admit, that still trouble me. First, what does it mean that verbal descriptions of the cross, gestured signs of the cross, and even references to cross-shaped objects like ships' masts, as evoking that cross, evidently appear in written text long before it was a graphic form reproduced in visual images. And this is maybe my first. So this actually is what, I, what I'm arguing, and this somewhat, there are people who disagree with me, is the first time we see something that is indisputably a cross of Jesus, held by Jesus, but here as a scepter rather than as an object of, of his execution or his crucifixion. And it happens to be covered with gems. So this is all kind of part of my long story, but given the clear, and that is dated, as you can see, to the middle of the fourth century. Given the clear importance of the cross in the first three centuries in theological writings, I cannot explain why the cross did not show up much before the fourth century and a crucifixion image did not appear in any extent in the material record before the fifth or the sixth century. And this may be the next slide. So here we have uh, two of the very earliest examples and they're, they're, all, they're divided, I mean they're separated by a century or more. More than a century. Is there an important difference between then verbal and visual images? between words and actual physical objects, between the things we say and the things we see. How does this affect the study of the cross then in poetry or hymnody in contrast to depictions of crosses or crucifixes 
in paint, marble, mosaic, precious metals, textiles, and ivory. And I have some more slides just to kind of uh, give you some examples. There we go. I think that may be all. My second question that still lingers. When and why did the cross become an independent symbol then, disconnected from the cross as an element in the narrative of Christ's death? Can it simply function as an identity marker or a decorative element? Is the resemblance of the symbol to the historic object unimportant, as you can sort of see sometimes? Um, are gemmed crosses or tree of life crosses or the various types and shapes of crosses an example of the image becoming detached from or transcending the story of crucifixion? Pointing to something else. Christ's second coming, perhaps? Does it become a metaphor rather than a memorial? When does it become an object of veneration in its own right? Think cross relics at this point, if you want. My third puzzling question, I'm almost getting to the end. I, let me see what the next slide is. I'm forgetting now. Um, yes, there's a, there's a veneration of the cross for itself, um, example. Have we become numbed to the significance of this object as one associated with Christ's sacrifice or even with human torture? Are we unaware of what it symbolizes when it's merely used for decorative purposes or jewelry? <laughs> Cross bling. <laughs> the fact is that the cross can offend and frighten. That's true. This symbol, emblem, or object has been implicated, implicated in horrible events. One only has to think of the burning crosses of the Ku Klux Klan, the banners of Christian knights as they pass through Jewish communities on their way to the Holy Land, or the flags of colonizers imposing their religious beliefs on indigenous people. Theologians have claimed that the cross sanctions suffering, especially of women and oppressed individuals and communities. At the same time, Many of these suffering ones have found solace in the idea that God shares and still comprehends their plight. And yeah, good, thank you. Controversial as these may be, images of Christa or Christine on the cross are perhaps efforts to affirm this. Or as we see the uh, Salantiname community in Central America. In this, we are reminded that God's very bodily incarnation includes the physical and emotional vulnerability of all creatures. Finally, the cross has demonstrable power. Just as the cross can offend and maybe harm, it can be offended and harmed. Hacked down and dragged through city streets to be dumped into a privy, or having beer dumped over it, by German Lutherans who inquire if Jesus still thirsts. Yet the cross also defends itself. From the time of the Emperor Constantine forward, it has been shown to possess miraculous powers of healing, of protection, and comfort. It appears in dreams, in the stars, in its simple intersection of horizontal and vertical lines, 
It even remains at the site of disasters as a witness to God's presence in the midst of human tragedy. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here, and I wish uh, to thank especially Lauren Beversluss for organizing this event and for including me in it. Arguably, the single most important artifact and symbol of Christianity, the Cross of Christ has, over the past 2,000 years, frequently attracted the attention of writers and artists. Modern scholarship has produced a large number of specialized studies to illuminate from various angles across its history, its meanings, and the modes of its religious veneration. Robin Jensen's recent book is unique in that it offers a broad yet erudite overview of the multifaceted reception of the cross in art and literature from antiquity to the 21st century. Reading this fine study has been a joy and I have noted many points that I want to investigate in the future. The study reveals its author's wealth of knowledge of the primary sources and her deep familiarity with the scholarship on this vast subject. Because her writing is so clear, the book will be valued by scholars and students alike, and no doubt also by readers beyond academia as a treasure trove of information. The greatest merit of this book, in my view, lies in the fact that Jensen illuminates her subject through texts and visual artifacts alike. Indeed, her analysis of visual testimonies makes up a substantial portion of her book. Throughout its nine chapters, the author productively harnesses material objects and images as indispensable testimonies to the history of the cross, as well as the nar narratives and devotion centered on it. Due attention to visual evidence is still a rare occurrence in religious studies, where images usually tend to serve mostly as backdrop. Every chapter is accompanied by illustrations, all in color, and the analysis of the depicted objects is crucial for Jensen's argument. Some necessary illustrations sadly have been omitted, I assume, due to the considerations of cost that more and more impact academic publishing. Jensen starts out by discussing the earliest textual testimonies, biblical and others, concerning Jesus' excruciating death on the cross. This was initially perceived as a troubling degradation by many of his followers, Jews and Gentiles, with some actually denying the reality of the crucifixion. What needed explanation was the fact that the Son of God and Messiah had been subjected to one of the most scandalous and brutal forms of capital punishment practiced in the Roman Empire. Jensen's study elucidates how the cross was gradually reimagined by Christians to signify both sacrifice and triumph. She traces how during the early Christian centuries, the cross became a powerful universal symbol of redemption and victory that invited devotion and public rituals. In texts and images, the cross features as a protective talisman and a sign of cosmic significance to announce Christ's second coming at the end of time. Early Christian writers juxtapose the cross as tree of life with the tree of death associated with the downfall of the first sinners in paradise. As Jensen aptly phrases it, the cross is a material link between original creation and eventual salvation. 
It is this quality of the cross that had a profound impact on the visual arts as well. Surprisingly, the cross in visual form appears rather late and is rarely encountered before the reign of Constantine the Great in the fourth century. Decisive for the cross's regular appearance in Christian iconography was its association with Constantine's miraculous vision of the cross before his victorious battle against Maxentius. Equally important was the tradition of the rediscovery of what was believed to be the original cross in Jerusalem by Constantine's mother, Helena. Here we see the cross as a symbol and material artifact being associated for the first time with the idea of Christian rulership, which paved the way for the cross of Christ to be used for political ends. For many centuries, the Byzantine emperors practically owned what was believed to be the cross of Christ after major portions of the relic had been shipped from Jerusalem to Constantinople during late antiquity. The physical remains of the cross were the preeminent artifacts displayed in Byzantine imperial ritual and public religious processions on several occasions each year. Aside from the relatively late appearance of visual representations of the cross, it is striking that artists avoided for many centuries depicting Christ's suffering and death. Artists tended to represent him as alive with his eyes open, standing firmly in front of the cross rather than collapsing on it in agony. Only from the ninth century on and very reluctantly do depictions appear of Christ's suffering visibly on the cross. In the Catholic West, this phenomenon coincides with the emergence of meditations on the passion that were intended to encourage empathy and reinforce in the faithful awareness of Christ's redemptive love. In several chapters of her book, Jensen illuminates how medieval devotion to the crucifix reflects a common understanding of Christ's sacrifice as an act of atonement for human sin. Especially on Good Friday, devotees watched and reenacted the stations of his passion in liturgical drama in which material crosses featured prominently. The cross could even represent the body of Christ, as evidenced by a document drawn up in England at the behest of King Edgar that Jensen cites. The text describes a Benedictine rite in which the cross signifying Christ's dead body was venerated by the congregation wrapped in a napkin and then placed in a sepulcher set up on the altar. A slightly later French source prescribes that a crucifix be washed with wine and water in commemoration of the blood and water flowing from the side of the Savior as mentioned in the Gospel of John. Following communion, the clergy and people were to drink the liquid, thus sanctified. The cross personified also features in an Anglo-Saxon epic poem entitled The Dream of the Root, in which the cross narrates the passion of Christ. Most interestingly, it also recounts its own fate. Like Christ, it suffers and is buried, but ultimately triumphs over death. The cross describes how upon its rediscovery it was adorned with gold and precious stones to be venerated as the tree of life. Texts such as this aptly illustrate that material artifacts, real or imagined, are indeed vital for Christian religious rites. To me personally, the chapters dealing with the cross in Western medieval poetry and liturgical drama represent the most captivating parts of Professor Jensen's book 
It is particularly in these chapters that one is reminded of the existing differences between Western and Eastern Christian manifestations of piety. In Byzantium, which I study in my own work, one encounters animated icons, but not animated crosses. I would be eager to learn from Professor Jensen how common the notion of the personified cross was in the Western medieval devotional literature she has been investigating. It is difficult to decide what other aspects of Jensen's insightful study to highlight. The book's subtitle references the many controversies to which the cross has given rise from the very beginnings of the Christian era. Jensen's remarks about the period of the Crusades illuminate the most unfortunate role the cross played in the ambitions of Christians to recapture the Holy Land from the Muslims. To take up the cross was a common expression for Christians engaging in violence as part of what was seen as a holy war urged on by the Pope. Knights bearing conspicuous symbols of the cross on their shields and armor slaughtered the Muslim population in acts of enormous brutality that have been documented in many eyewitness accounts. Jensen also reminds her readers of the massacres of Jews accused of being the so-called Christ killers in the homelands of the Crusaders or along the way to the Holy Land. Paradoxically, in the period of the Crusades, to use Jensen's own words, the cross began to be regarded as an emblem of oppression and violence, as well as divine love and human deliverance. Jensen illuminates another key phase of the Christian understanding of the cross and other artifacts in her chapter on the Reformation. In this period, the fate of crosses could not always be separated from that of religious images. Protestant iconoclasts spared plain crosses without the body of Christ from destruction as they were seen as abstract symbols of his salvific deed authorized by scripture. Crucifixes, however, were at times seized from churches, for instance in Zurich, and burned or otherwise destroyed in public spaces. Often, <coughs> as in earlier times, this entailed personification Crucifixes were now publicly mocked and punished or commanded to do things that Christ had done during the Passion just to demonstrate the impotence of the material artifact. That said, Martin Luther, Jensen notes, never forbade images. He employed Lucas Cranach, one of the most eminent painters of the Northern Renaissance, to produce religious art, including large altarpieces for Lutheran churches. The main bulk of Jensen's book treats the history and perception of the cross in pre-modern Europe, especially in the Catholic West. However, in her last chapter, she broadens the perspective to include the new world, the modern era, and views of Jews and Muslims. She addresses critically the historical identification of the cross with the colonizing nations, its negative connotations as an emblem to express Christian claims to political and religious power, and the appropriation of the cross's symbolism by white supremacists. Early modern Christian missionaries in their encounters with indigenous peoples in Africa and Mesoamerica came across symbols and ideas that bore striking similarities to their own religion. Cross symbols in Congo, for instance, were likely associated with conceptions about the universe and otherworldly realities. 
Cross-shaped trees prominent in ancient Maya culture signified the Earth's upper world and underworld. And interestingly, these trees were fertilized with human blood. Some missionaries gladly interpreted such symbols and customs as signs of a previous conversion of the natives. Others took them as legitimating the conquest of these nations. Robin Jensen begins her book with the Ground Zero Cross that was found among the remains of the World Trade Center after its destruction and now forms part of the September 11 Memorial and Museum. Seen as a miraculous sign of consolation and hope by many, the Steel Cross has also attracted fierce opposition culminating in a lawsuit filed by the American atheists. One could add similar instances elsewhere, such as the recent disputes over the Bladensburg Peace Cross. Mm -hmm. In some countries, including my own native Germany, lawsuits over the presence of crosses in classrooms of public schools have been a recurrent issue. While reasonable arguments are put forth both for and against the display of crosses in the public sphere, such debates are usually accompanied by strong emotions. A defense frequently voiced for such crosses against charges of discrimination and violation of religious neutrality is that the cross is an historical symbol of cultural identity. Oddly, another recurring claim is that such crosses are not to be understood as religious symbols. I think that Robin Jensen's book about the cross in history teaches otherwise. Thank you. I want to thank Lumen Christie and all the other sponsors for uh, organizing this wonderful event, and especially for bringing my old friend Robin here to the uh, confines of Swift Hall. Ave crux spes unica, as the poet sang. Robin Jensen's The Cross sets out in clear and engaging language and with a wealth of pictures and historical detail why for nearly two millennia Christians have celebrated the cross in word and image as the hope of our salvation. Robin's brave book is a delight to read and to look at. For me, reading it through was to encounter many old friends and to make some new ones. Of course, to try to cover almost 2,000 years of images, as well as key texts in prose and poetry, is not only a bold venture, but also one that can invite possible disappointment as the reader looks in vain for a favorite object, picture, or text. I'm not going to try to give you a list of the objects that I would like to have seen in the book, <laughs> but I do have a more large-scale comment about the period that Robin discusses in chapter 7. That's the chapter on Crooks Patiens, Medieval Devotion to the Dying Christ. <clears throat> First, however, I'd like to make a general reflection about the history of the cross that struck me as I was reading the book. Robin never quite makes this argument explicitly, but I think it's implied in the course of her presentation and in many of the insightful analyses she provides. My general reflection concerns what could be called the universality of the cross, more specifically the cosmic and historical universality of the cross. These two universalities can be distinguished but not separated. Many cross depictions combine elements of both. Christian belief that Jesus Christ is both ruler of the cosmos and lord of history is rooted in the Bible and gradually became more and more explicit in the developing faith of the church. 
The Paschal mystery is the foundation for Christ's universal cosmic and historical role, beginning with Jesus' death on the cross, stretching on to his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, and his establishment at the right hand of the Father. Each of these events could be and was indeed pictured, but the cross served as a kind of metonymy or stand-in for Christ in all these roles and thus came to share in his universal functions. I think this stand-in aspect is particularly evident in the Crooks Gemata figures, the jeweled crosses. Uh, Robin discusses these at length in chapter 5. But it seems that these universal roles began to be assigned to the cross as early as the second century. Let me take the cross's cosmic function first. Robin refers to the text from Justin Martyr's first apology about the cosmic universality of the cross, this first apology 55. According to Justin, the cross had been foreordained as a sign of Christ's power and rule because the cross is a universal symbol seen everywhere even in the human form. Nothing can exist without the form of the cross. Even more daringly, the passage in First Apology 59 to 60, here Justin is discussing Plato's Timaeus, difficult passage, uh, Timaeus 34 through 37, where the demiurge fashions the world soul from three kinds of existence, and then the material of the soul is cut into two strips, which are placed crosswise, the Greek letter key, bent round and made into the two rings, the circle of the same and the circle of the different. This is what Justin says about it. Says Plato, philosophizing about the Son of God, says he expressed him upon the universe in the figure of a letter key, misunderstanding Moses' prophecy about the universal function of the next power to the supreme God, or logos, figured in the shape of the cross upon the universe. So, um, Justin is reading Plato as say, saying that Plato had read some Moses about the prophecy of the serpent set up in the desert on the, on the cross and misunderstood it. Moses was prophesying Christ's cross. Plato misunderstood it about the demiurge's action on the world's soul. The cosmic dimensions of the cross also appear in some 5th century mosaics of the Crux Gemata such as the Santa Polinari apse that appears on the cover of the book, and also in the Naples Baptistry, San Giovanni Infante, which is not mentioned here. We also have hints of the cross's cosmic function when images of the sun and moon appear in the crucifixion. Uh, look at the Metz ivory plaque on page 161. There are also medieval cosmic diagrams that introduce figures of the cross. The cosmic dimensions are also found in poetry. The greatest of all passion poems is Venatius Fortunatus's Pange Lingua. And in chapter 7, the poet sings of how Christ's pierced body oozes both blood and water so that terra pontus astra mundus colavantor flumine. By this stream, the earth, the ocean, the stars, and the universe are cleansed. So there's a definite cosmic function. But there's also a universal salvific salvation history function. This is suggested in Revelation 21.13, where Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. If Christ is the beginning and the end, so too is his cross, as suggested in the striking leaf from the Beatus manuscript that Robin includes on page 23. 
From the point of view of the history of salvation, the role of the cross in the beginning and the end of history begins to develop in the second century. First with the typological parallel between the tree of life in paradise, that's Genesis 2.9, and the cross. This represents the protological aspect. The cross was there in the tree of life. The identification of the cross with the sign of the Son of Man predicted of the returning Christ, that's Matthew 24, provides the other bookend, the eschatological aspect. Robin's book has a good deal to say about the relation of the cross to the tree of life and also about the eschatological role of the cross as the sign of the Son of Man. This is particularly in chapter 2. She cites the second century apocalypse of Peter, which may be the earliest surviving witness to this. The apocalypse says in its first chapter, <clears throat> Christ is speaking, So I will come upon the clouds of heaven with a great host in my majesty, with my cross going before my face. There are many pictorial presentations of the relationship between the crucifixion and the second coming. For example, on page 39, there is an image of the west face of the 10th century Irish high cross called Murdoch's Cross at Monaster Boyce. And that face, the, that uh, west face, shows the crucifixion. But on the other side, the east face, looking to the future, in the center has Christ coming in judgment, and then related scenes like the weighing of souls by St. Michael. Similar matchings of crucifixion and judgment occur on almost 10 other of the Irish high crosses. So while the program of the Irish crosses was very varied, this matching of crucifixion and last judgment is significant, I think, for the function of the cross not only in early medieval Ireland, but also for the role of the cross in universal history. Now I'd like to take up my, my second point, which is to uh, make some comments on the uh, chapter 7. The medieval devotion of the dying uh, Christ. And like Robin, I note the puzzlement that I think everyone has with the reasons for the medieval transition from the holistic, generally optimistic view of Christ's triumph on the cross prevalent in earlier centuries to the growing emphasis on the suffering human Jesus suspended on the instrument of torture. Robin discusses and illustrates some major steps in this evolution, but I wonder if the truly revolutionary character of this shift is not sufficiently brought to the fore. One could argue that the centuries between about 1200 and 1500 saw the dominance of the crucifix and the, the passionate theology, devotion, preaching, art, and, med and meditation, such as has never been seen either before or afterwards. The suffering Jesus and the bloody crucifix meet us almost everywhere in the late Middle Ages. At times, the passion snuffs out almost everything else in the drama of salvation, in illustration. The late 15th century Italian Franciscan mystic Camilla Battista da Varano. Camilla was obsessed with Christ's passion, especially his mental sufferings on which she wrote a popular treatise. In her major work, The Spiritual Life, chapter 17, she makes the following revealing statement. She says, <clears throat> In my soul, I have not wished to acknowledge Easter or Christmas any longer, or any other feast of the church. Rather, she says, I wished and still wish that all the days of my life might be only Good Friday, on which I want to weep always for Christ's most bitter passion, so that at my death and end, 
he might appear to me resurrected and glorious. Patristic Christians would have been astonished to think that believers were not able to share in the resurrection in this life and they had to wait until, until death. This overemphasis on Christ's passion and bloody suffering can be seen in a host of texts and pictures, of which Robin's book contains some noted examples. From the perspective of this late medieval devotion and mysticism, I believe two major interacting aspects of passion piety can be identified. The first I would characterize as compassio, that is, emotive identity with the suffering of Christ and Mary during the events of the Passion. We're all familiar with the many portrayals, not only of the weeping Mary and John the Beloved at the foot of the cross, but also with the addition of so many other sorrowful figures to the crucifixion scene itself, as well as to the events that led up to it and succeeded it. These pictorial exp expansions went hand in glove with the explosion of late medieval programs of meditation on every aspect of the passion story designed to bring us to compassion. Uh, for example, the popular Meditationes Vitae Jesu Christi from about 1300, Ludolf of Saxony's best-selling Vitae Jesu Christi from the late 14th century. Connected with pictures and texts illustrating compassio is the related theme of imitatio passionis, that is, devotional programs which use details of the passion story either to cultivate virtues or, more difficult for us to, to understand, to inflict bodily pain on oneself in order to participate more closely in Jesus' suffering. The Imitatio Passionis begins with a divine initiative, that is, with Francis of Assisi's reception of the stigmata in September 1224. As all the accounts of this most famous passion experience and numerous artistic portrayals make clear, Francis' reception of Christ's wounds was a gift given him to seal his life of imitating Christ's poverty and compassion. So it looks backward. The special sign for Franciscans, at least, gave the Poverello his unique status in salvation history, and from the 1240s on, Franciscans not only projected the saint back into the story of the crucifixion in a special way, but following the logic of the cross gave him a role in its eschatological fulfillment. Thus, Francis was identified as the angel of the sixth seal of Apocalypse 7-2, bearing the sign of the living God, that is the tau of the cross, and the wounds of Christ inscribed on his body. So here, the eschatological function of the cross has begun to be participated in by a human person. The late Middle Ages was also replete with forms of imitatio passionis, both in the physically external and in an interior way, and I'm going to close with just two examples. The first is what I call a literal and external imitatio passionis. Francis of Assisi imitated the practices of Christ's life, and therefore was worthy to receive the marks of the Passion. His follower, the Third Order, Franciscan Margaret of Cortona in the mid-13th century, went in one better by acting out all the events of the Passion in a public spectacle on Good Friday. This is recounted in the Vita written by her friend Friar Junta di Bavignati. On Holy Thursday Eve, Christ appeared to Margaret, told her that she would share in the pains that Mary felt at the foot of the cross. The next morning, Good Friday, 9 a.m., Margaret goes into ecstasy 
and until 3 p.m. She, she relived all the details of Christ's suffering. Junta says, such a new and moving spectacle so moved the citizens of Cortona, men and women, that they left everything they were doing to fill our church. There they saw Margaret not alongside the cross, but as if she were on the cross, tortured by extreme suffering. In terrible excessive suffering, she ground her teeth, writhed like a worm, grew as pale as ash, lost her pulse and speech, grew totally cold. She died. The cross with Christ's body on it could also be used as an object of internal imitatio passionis by utilizing programs of meditation designed to strengthen the Christian life through adhering to Christ's virtues. There's lots of these. One of the most detailed was created by the Dutch priest Nicholas van Esch in the early 16th century. Van Esch's spiritual exercises, as he called them, were more or less contemporary with the much more influential spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola but they're far more medieval in character. There are altogether 14 exercises dealing with the three stages of the spiritual life. The first four uh, deal with the via purgativa, the next six with the via illuminativa, and the final four with the via unativa. The third and fourth exercises of the six concerning the via illuminativa, these come significantly in the midpoint of the road to union, are based on the passion. They're contemplative meditations on how each aspect of Christ's body on the cross functions as a source of virtue to be imitated. From the wounds in Christ's feet, we draw the virtue of humility and our three daughters. From his pierced head comes true wisdom and her three daughters. From Christ's wounded side arises love and that three daughters. From the wound in the right hand arises justice and three more daughters. From the wound in the left hand comes fortitude and other daughters. Finally, after all this meditating on what are the virtues from each part of the suffering Christ, finally Nicholas tells his readers to extend themselves with Christ on the cross and through the practice of these virtues conform themselves to him as their model. These are just two examples of the creativity, we might even say creative overkill, of late medieval passion, piety, and picture and practice. Robin Jensen's chapter seven introduces us to this strange, perhaps troubling era of feverish passion intensity. It's a long story and there's so much more. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so why don't we first give Jensen a moment if she'd like to respond to, to any of these before we open up more general questions. My biggest response is, let, let's all write another book. <laughs> I would love to have the space to, you know, this, without realizing it when I got into this project, I just realized what an incredible, rich topic it is. And um, you're helping me, both of you, to think about how this comes together and what much more could be, could be there. And, and I, I guess... I will say that you're, you're nice to start the book with the Notre Dame motto. <laughs> the cross is our only hope, which is the first picture in the book, and I'm hoping that my, my, my bosses at the university knew that. Uh, I did that on purpose. Um, so it's the painting from the Mary Chapel in the Basilica on campus. Um, I, I think I can't add a lot. I think maybe we should have the audience jump in.